0: Welcome to the Canine Classroom, a podcast for dog owners, training professionals, and dog enthusiasts, where we discuss training, behavior issues, and everything in between. We're two friends and dog trainers that share a passion for dogs. We're constantly learning and exploring to become better at what we do, while also questioning each other and our own thoughts. We're here to provide helpful advice, have open conversations, ask questions, get answers, as well as hear from colleagues and experts in the industry, regardless of method and training style. So take a seat and get your notepad out because class is in session.
1: everyone welcome to the canine classroom it's your host Benny Viola I'm here with Anthony DeMarinas and today we have Sarah Bruski here what's going on guys
2: hi there hello
1: how are you guys all doing today
2: you know surviving it's winter here in Minnesota so trying to keep the dogs busy and out of my hair while working and raising a toddler it's just great it's it's chaos
1: (laughs) And you only I, have like what, like two dogs, three? <laughs> oh
2: yeah, you know, just <laughs> I wish. I wish a couple I had of
1: birds. Two dogs. You have like a penguin, right? Or what?
2: <laughs> I have well, I have a crow named penguin, but yes, I have that too. You know, it's just a regular old zoo over here. <laughs> Vinny and I yeah. were talking
0: about that the other day. So once you're done introducing yourself, the first question is already gonna be explain how you do it with all the dogs <laughs> and a toddler and a bird. Like I want to know how the hell do you do it?
2: Daily panic attacks. <laughs> yeah, you take away like
1: all of the excuses from anyone else. It's like so hard to be like. <laughs> it's yeah, it's,
2: it's excessive, is what it is. Really, let's be honest.
1: <laughs> so tell well, us a little bit about yourself.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm Sarah Bruski. I have been training dogs since I was 11 years old, junior handler and all that after I convinced my parents to like let me buy myself a dog. Um, So I started with a Border Collie, thought I was a great trainer growing up. Um, Border Collies are fantastic. Um, And yes, they have their own thing, but they also kind of make some of our jobs a little bit easier. Um, So after that, I was like, you know what, let's go for it. Let's get great Danes. So I had a couple of great Danes (laughs) that I would train in agility and do all the tricks and everything with. Um, but pretty soon because I was getting a little bit more interested in agility, um, my mentor really pushed me to get a dog that I would be able to put a championship on and really pursue that as a career option. And so for that reason, I actually adopted a Border Collie mix named Zuma and she has been really the igniter for everything I've done. Um, she's a cool, like Border Collie, Kettle Dog, Australian Shepherd, Rat Terrier, whatever's in their uh, <laughs> mix, but I played Frisbee with her for a little bit. And then um, really got into it, imported Australian Cooley, and then started competing around the country. And pretty soon Perina hired me to do shows for them. And so that's what I've been busy doing the last past eight years was performing at Perina Farms every single day with my team of dogs, which is also why I have 5,000 dogs, because you can't do that job um, with just a couple of dogs, unfortunately. Um, And then I was really fortunate to get hired on as an instructor for Frenzy Dog Sport Academy. And that um, really allowed me a little bit more freedom as far as teaching and experimenting with different things and kind of getting these style, the the methods I use out to a bunch of different people, like a giant lab experiment um, and helping teams (laughs) kind of grow together and find my passion with that. And so since then, I teach a couple places online. Um, I travel a lot to teach seminars or I did before I had my daughter and I hope to start traveling a little bit more again. And I compete in pretty much Every sport out there I've competed at least once in, Um, but yeah, it's just me having fun with my dogs pretty much. And how many dogs did you say you have? Can we avoid that question <laughs> no i have i have 10 dogs right now so um it's not as bad as it sounds five of them are in their double digits and are retired couch potatoes and then a couple of them i did retire early due to different like injuries and stuff like that um so i only have uh, three dogs that are active in training right now for sports the rest of them get to hike and swim and basically enjoy their senior years
1: nice and what yeah. sports are you actively in right now
2: yeah, right now I'm training uh, creatures, my six-year-old Malinois, and he just got his Monte Ring 3 last October. Um, so we're, as soon as the snow melts, we'll be out there training again, um, but we took the winter off. He, he really needed it. I really needed it mentally, um, but physically he needed it. He's not so gentle on his body, and so it was nice to give him that little bit of a rest. And then he does dock diving as well, but mostly just the stay shape, and then we do joring and sledding with him. Um, and then my other two dogs, my coolies, I have Vibrant, who's a two-year-old Australian coolie, and then Cake, who is my, she's eight months old, uh, Australian coolie. And they're both training in nose work, obedience, duck diving, agility, disc, and uh, joring as well.
0: Uh, your dogs are from Australia. Uh, any Are any of those? I know you breed them, you said, but yeah. are they from uh, Australia specifically?
2: Yeah. So Zynga and tie are my two original coolies, and they were imported from Australia. And then... So, Cake is Zynga's granddaughter and Vibrant is Zynga's niece, I think. So <laughs> but both you, of them were bred by me. Yeah.
0: Do you find, so I'm curious, I'm not like, I'm not the most familiar with the coolie. I have two Kelpies. Um, oh, yeah. I'm curious, like, do they. Do the ones from Australia have more instinct at all for herding or because I, the ones I've seen here, the few that I have seen, they don't uh, seem to have that instinct. So, yeah, so
2: just like every herding breed out there, like Border Collies, Kelpies, whatever, it's, it's dependent on their lines mm-hmm. as far as what they're being bred for. So Zynga came from a really big, uh, sheep ranch out in Australia, um, and she, the the coolie tends to be more of an upright herder and loud and pushy versus a kelpie who's going to be a little bit stronger-eyed and a little bit more intense as a whole. Um, and Zynga and Ziptai definitely go with that type of a thing. Uh, style herding, I don't do a lot of herding with them, honestly. I just instinct tested them like, yep, they've got it. That's good enough for me. It's not the sport for me. Um, and so... Some of the lines, like I imported four puppies from Australia from a specific line and they were all really strong eyed herding okay. dogs like they definitely had that more intense type of a herding style, but often we don't see them work as well as as stereotypical herding breeds that we have in the United States here, like border collies are so intense. Kelpies are so intense. And that tends to be the style that people are looking for when they're competing in the sports here, which makes sense because that's what does typically very well in the, the herding trials here. But when we look at like Australian shepherds, that's more in line with what the coolies, how they tend okay. to herd. Yeah. And so if I were to get into trialing with my coolies for herding, it would probably be more like the ASCA line um, and going that route versus more of the border collie heavy trials just because the yeah. style is so different
0: more that's the, me just
2: saying that like going like i'm not sure i haven't really yeah. looked into herding, but
0: yeah. so it really has to do with what they're bred for more of a, a arena style as opposed to a field trial type of style
2: yeah, so there tend to be two different lines of coolies There are those that are used to gather huge mobs off in the distance and kind of work independent of the handler so they go out they find the sheep in the outback they bring them back, and then you have your dogs that work in the pen, and so just like the kelpies the coolies do back sheep. So they run across their backs, bark at the ones in the front to get them going, and then come back. And so those are the two different styles you're going to tend to see. Um, And then like the coolies, there's just not a lot of numbers and populations. So the big emphasis right now with breeding them is really avoiding a lot of inbreeding, because that was kind of the way it was heading. Um, So we're really trying to diversify and find those other lines. And those, those, um, those dogs are out and working the station that aren't necessarily registered or like recognized as purebred coolies and kind of bringing those lines back in. Um, versus the Kelpie, the Kelpie is pretty much a recognized breed everywhere. The coolies don't really have that. Um, And so you tend to see a lot more diverse uh, lines and a lot more um, differences between the dogs than you would see in like a
0: typical Kelpie or a Border Collie. What made you, I'm so curious, what made you go the Cooley route as opposed to the Border Collie or Kelpie route?
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, So Zuma is a Merle mixed breed herding dog with blue eyes. And so I was like, I love this dog. She's everything I wanted in a dog. Um, she's pushy. She's smart. She's uh, forgiving of my mistakes. She doesn't pattern a lot. She's goofy. I want this. And so my friend had actually already imported a coolie from Australia and she was going to import another. And I was like, you know what, let's go for it. I love your dog. It's more what I'm looking for. It's look like Zuma acts like that dog. Like that's my best bet in recreating a Zuma. And so her and I imported together and that was Zynga and her sister. Um, and from that I was hooked. Like, so Zynga is this tiny, she's like 24 pounds. and She's just this itty bitty little thing that I can throw around a frisbee. She's ridiculously athletic, super high drive, really intense dog that is smart and independent. And, um, but she's goofy. Like she has the best sense of humor I've ever seen in a dog. And she doesn't take herself seriously or like, uh, a border collie. I feel like <clears throat> at least the ones I've worked with the foster, the ones I fostered and the ones I have, they tend to be like about the work, right? They want to work, 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 work. And they tend to pattern to that a little bit more and they take their work a little bit more seriously. They can be goofy off the clock, but they're a lot more serious in the work where the coolies are like, yeah, cool, I'll do it. But like, what's in it for me? And so you're constantly playing this game of chess of like, they're they're recognizing the countdown timer and, and frisbee right so they're gonna go oh that's the countdown timer i'm gonna stay away because i don't want this game to be over like those are the games they're playing and so it's not as like gifted to you as some of the other herding breeds i feel like um not that border collies don't have their own things you have to work with i've got a border collie i completely understand that but um i feel like they make me a better trainer and that's why i went that route and they're just so goofy they are so goofy <laughs> and hilarious so i love it
0: <laughs> nice.
1: I like that you enjoy the challenge uh, <laughs> by, yeah. by getting something that's going to challenge you and make you a better trainer. Um, so one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on, um, there's been a lot of discussion lately um, with different dog sports, and you do a lot of them. <laughs> so we can we can ask, we could ask you, you know, uh, particularly we've been hearing a lot of, um, you know, agility and bite sports, what what do you see as like the main difference between those two in terms of like motivating your dog to work or or maybe some things that are difficult um, for each of those sports?
2: Yeah, they have a lot of similarities, in my opinion. So both of them are sports that we're trying to get the most intensity and speed out of our dogs as possible while regaining or retaining control of them. So we need Mm -hmm. a high level of control. Um, At the same time, we're pushing our dogs to the limit, right? So in monitoring, we want that dog that is going to go through a brick wall pretty much to bite the guy (laughs) like that is, they don't literally go through a brick wall for those of you that don't know sport, but um, they have to be willing to do that. And so we're pushing that, but at the same time, as we're building that drive and that intensity and love for the sport and combating the the, um, genetic component of it, we're also trying to regain that control and making sure that our dog's listen to us and knowing that it's a team sport. It's the same thing in agility. It's just okay. high intensity. It's over so fast. So I guess the similarities are that, right? We want speed. We want intensity. We want love for the sport, but at the same time, retaining that control where I see Mondio and specifically Mondio or IGP those are the two that I have experience with as far as being more difficult than agility is that we are dealing with more intense dogs that have a bigger capability of being dangerous and so that is something that I think we need to take a little bit we take that we do tend to take that very seriously um because if our dogs decide, not to listen, you know, there's, there is a potential for injury, like my decoy could be caught off guard, for example, and uh, twist their, their knee or something along those lines. Right. Um, and so you have those risks involved. Um, you're dealing with a bigger, more powerful dog in general and agility what happens if a dog doesn't listen is they might run off and chase another dog. Right. So if you're working (laughs) the same ring, like that's the kind of the biggest thing that could potentially happen. Yes. There's a dog fight and some serious things that could happen there, but it's not as um, you're not taking somebody else's health and ability to do their job kind of, at the same time you're working that dog. Um, And so I think that's something that a lot of people don't consider is that every time I step on the field with my dog, with Creature, I am putting the decoy in a vulnerable spot and it's my job Mm -hmm. to take care of that decoy, right? And so if I go onto the field and I don't have control of my dog, that's a situation I'm putting that decoy in that shouldn't be there where if I'm going onto the field agility ring with my dog and I don't have control of the dog it's me who's going to look like the idiot right or my dog's going to go jump on somebody or something along those lines typically and so I'm just not having those same risks that um that you do in protection sports so I think that's definitely something to consider in the whole argument of you know why do we choose the methods that we choose when we're doing protection sports versus the methods we choose when we're doing something like agility? It's not just the skills and the the things you're doing with your dog, but it's the entire environment. It's the entire situation you're putting that dog into and those around you.
0: I was just going to say, what about, what, what about like the instinct that dog's particular drive? Like, so when I think of like, when I'm thinking of like protection sports, I'm thinking that, well, that dog's also bred. For something like this so they're going to maybe be more motivated whereas in agility yes dogs are are motivated but are they in a different state of mind and and i don't know that i have the the answer to that i'm just curious because i like one of my kelpies is more sport bred so the moment that i started agility with him it was like he knew what to do already whereas my farm bred kelpie could care less, not interested. Too much, like too much pressure for her. She'll run off. She wants to avoid me. It's not something she enjoys, you know. But her intensity level on sheep is way higher, totally different state of mind compared to my other Kelpie. So, so like where like, do you think that part of it is also like the dog's instinct and their drive in that particular situation that you're working them in that's also affecting their behavior as well? It absolutely
2: is. But let's talk about two different styles of agility here. So you have agility where um, you have a dog and you want to do agility with that dog, right? So that is most of the teams out there. And then you have that top 10% who get their dogs specifically for agility. And those dogs have been bred for generations upon mm-hmm. generations for agility, specifically for the intensity, for the speed, for the athleticism, glad, for the jumping
0: I'm style. I'm glad you brought this up because it <laughs> was going to be my follow-up. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah.
2: So it they are bred for it, just like the dogs in protection sports are bred for it, right? Yep. So we can even get more nuanced, like what type of agility am I breeding for? Am I breeding for something like Aska, which has a lot more running space? Or am I breeding for a lot more nimbleness, like in the UKI where they're gonna to have to be doing backsides and all these tight more turns. Same with protection sports. Am I breeding for IGP? where I want this specific guarding style and I want this specific tracking style or am I breeding for Mondio Ring where the grip maybe isn't important, but it has to be functional. So I still want it, but they don't have to have a great natural guard, right? They just have to bark once and that counts. And so there's different nuances we're breeding for, but those dogs are bred for just like the production sport dogs are. And I will argue, so I have, um, I have a tendency to try to get like the most intense dogs I possibly can. I'm not quite <laughs> sure why, it's not fun, you know?
1: This um, seems to be a theme after... that I have <laughs>
0: yeah, I was recurring. just gonna say there's a theme here. <laughs> yeah. So
2: Creature, um, he's a lot of dog. Um, and I am constantly dealing with arousal things with him and trying to bring him back down after bites and like are you in a thoughtful state of mind and all this. And it's made me a really great trainer in that regard. But I deal with the exact same thing. I'm pointing back here at vibrant. She's laying on the couch. (laughs) Um, I deal with the exact same thing with vibrant and agility. I mean, it's just it's just a different sport. She definitely gets so aroused when she's doing agility that I have to do the exact same things I do with creature to bring her back down into a thoughtful state of mind. Otherwise she's going to miss the weave entrance. She's going to miss the backside. She's not listening to my verbal cues about which way to turn. And we, we ran into that exact problem today because I wasn't taking the time to bring her back down and I know better. And so, um, the difference is, is that creature will let me know by biting me with his teeth when he's too high and he's frustrated. Vibrant just runs in circles with crazy uh, dilated pupils and (laughs) just ignores me. So, Um, but the same issues are there.
0: It's interesting also with the individual dog, like putting aside Putting aside the fact that oh well, what are they bred for? Are they bred specifically. Are are you breeding that dog specifically to herd, to do agility, to do protection? What type of style protection? Like putting that aside, understanding the dog and that uh, the way that they communicate to <laughs> tell you, hey, I'm getting frustrated or you know uncomfortable or whatever is always super important. I always find it interesting when I'm like at agility and I see the way in which a dog will respond differently. Like my dog's very quiet. So Mm -hmm. he'll kind of shut off if he feels like, oh, I made a mistake or whatever. So he's a little more sensitive. Whereas some dogs come rushing in and they'll bark or even bite the handler, (laughs) you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. um, Cake right now, my young one, her thing is if things are too frustrating for her, she just runs off and says hi to somebody and jumps all over them. Like she takes those, you know, mom's Being too hard, whatever. I don't understand what she wants me to do. I'll just go say hi to the teacher instead, or this dog, or whatever. Um, where vibrant just, yeah, she just goes into a whole nother not thinking level, which is super fun.
1: So with the arousal levels, I'm I'm doing mondeuring with my first dog. And I obviously started noticing once he really started enjoying the bite work, it was like it, it. I don't, I don't want to say you're like almost training your dog to be just dis- yeah I mean you kind of are like he was super engaged with me in the beginning and then I would get there and it was just like he's scanning for that decoy and I'm like I'm so glad I spent a lot of time when he was younger like shifting through different drives and reinforcement strategies and going you know I took I took your class early on with him um, because I think it is important to set that up and I want to kind of go into that of like setting up expectations, even in the same location, right? Because if I just go to the field and then it's just like jack him up, he bites a decoy and then I leave and I just do that, then it's going to be really hard to ever like bring him down. So like I I joke about it with one of my friends because like I'll bring him near my car after and like he's like laying down, I'm like rubbing his belly and I'm like just doing other things to kind of like deescalate him rather than just like jack him up to a thousand and then like run him to my car and then pop him in the crate and then leave, you know? So like what kind of things do you do, um, do you kind of tip your dog off as to like what they're about to get into, do you have ways of like shifting them through different like all right, like you're about to like be biting a decoy and okay like you need to kind of come back down to me over here with food and or social play or whatever it is so you know what kind of stuff do you do. With that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I spent a lot of time, just like you mentioned, teaching my dog how to go from high arousal to low arousal. And it's a skill they definitely need to practice. And for each dog, that's going to be different. But my goal is, my ultimate goal is to go from biting the guy to doing a scatter of kibble in the grass and looking for every single piece of kibble, right? So like that is the goal, because that is the highest of high to the lowest of low. They're not gonna search for every single piece of kibble unless they are mentally capable of doing that and in a lower arousal state. And so the way I do that is I kind of build up a a ranking system of their arousal reactions to different reinforcers. And so, and not just the reinforcers, but the delivery of those reinforcers. So I might go from biting the guy to um, biting a bite pillow with me to chasing his tug to playing tug with me, slowing that down, now chasing some treats so that he's still running, trying to meet him where he's at, but chasing that treat rather than taking my hand and then me tossing a treat to him, because that's exciting, then taking food for my hand, then the scatter. So when we're first learning this, we go through every single step, making sure he's doing each step and he's happy and content in that step and his arousal is coming down. And then we bring him back up and do it all over again. And so he gets really good at that skill. So pretty soon I start taking steps out. So now it's bite the guy, bite the tug for me rather than the bite pillow to uh, chasing a thrown treat to the scatter. And so now I'm just doing a couple of steps and then I start taking steps out even more until he's able to do that. And I will say, I mean, he is not always capable of going from biting the guy to doing the scatter. First off, that would be pretty punishing for him. He would hate it, right? Because he doesn't, he's not enjoying that kibble as a reinforcement in that situation. It's an obedience exercise for him. And so, even now, if I'm looking at him, I'm like, wow, he is really, really cranked out of his mind. So, we're going to go do dog and white in St. Louis here in a couple of weeks. He hasn't done bite work other than on me for since October. <laughs> so, he's going to be jacked. And so, we're going to spend some time. Okay, now we're going to do the tug and I'm going to help him come down before I ask him to do that next thing. And then, when we do our exercises, each exercise has its own little start pattern. And so um, he knows as I'm setting him up for the retrieve that a retrieve is coming. He knows that the sendaway is coming. He knows that we're going to be doing the face attack versus a defensive handler and all of the different exercises. But in training itself, I tend to use more equipment to tell him what we're doing because I want, if I'm doing something like grip work or technique work, we're going to be doing lots and lots of repetitions. I don't want him to be associating that. I don't want his arousal to go so high. Um, And like, this is more like when I was actually building him up. Um, I wouldn't, didn't want his arousal to get so high with the suit picture because I wanted him to always associate the suit as control, right? That he has to look to me for that guidance. So back when I was doing like dragons and, and um, really working more that grip with him, it was always with him in a harness and it was always with a sleeve on the decoy. So that he was seeing that picture with dry building and and associating that with that. And then once he was on the suit, then it was about control to earn the bite and kept that really separate. And if I ever had to go back to teaching him more technique stuff, it was back onto the sleeves and onto the harness. So I tried to be as clear as I possibly can, as far as what we're doing in that moment and my expectations of him and then where his arousal should be.
0: Do you, just to clarify, I'm just curious, um, aside from the visual Do you have certain words or phrases that you're using for each thing? Just as an example, like with a client, I might teach them one word to mean play. So usually that's you ready. And then for training, I'll say want to work. So there's they can distinguish the two differences. And I'm I'm just curious, like if you're doing something like that, because I don't have experience in what you're talking about. So I'd be kind of curious if you're using something verbal for each of those things.
2: Yeah. Um so a lot of people in Mondio do they'll be like this is the sendaway this is the sendaway Uh that's a lot of words for me. <laughs>
0: and so
2: I tend to use um what side I set my dog up on. So left side is going to be a higher arousal activity, right side is going to be more controlled, more laid back activity. So his arousal depend on that. And then my cues are for which side. So my ready is to flip into heel position and look up at me. And that tells him we're about ready to work and we can go from there. And then um The pattern itself, so if I was doing a a defensive handler, so that's where the decoys with you, and then the guy comes up and hits you, you go through a scenario, guy hits you, and then the dog bites on the hit. Um, So for that, I flip him over to my right side before we get to the start line. I tell him with me, which is my informal, come over to my right side, and then defense tells him that we're going to be doing the defense exercise to look for. So the actual cue there tells him to look for the decoy find out where the decoy is and that's who he should be paying attention to in that moment. So it's a cue that yes, this exercise is coming, but it also tells him a specific behavior to do. So it's a little bit different than just like a a cue of this is what we're doing because it does give him specific things that he should be doing in that moment. Okay.
1: And then how do you, um, how do you help him distinguish, like to not associate maybe like a specific location with, with us with a certain like say say you took him out of the car and he was like jacked up like he knew like he's he's up there like what what are you doing at that point to kind of help him like say you get there not maybe he doesn't but say you get there and he's already escalated um are you de-escalating him like do you have a process you're going right through those steps that you were just saying before
2: yeah so he um always needs to come out this is creature specifically. So when I work <laughs> famous, it's very different. Famous is a dog that spins down when she's nervous and she gets nervous mm. quite a lot. And so for her, none of this applies. She comes out of the crate and she's free to do whatever she wants on her. leash. she can look around. The only time I ask for control is as we're walking through that gate to get to the field. Um, if I ask for control too early, she spins down too much because she doesn't get a chance to really get acclimated to the environment. So it's a very different story for her. For creature, um, if I allowed him that much freedom, he definitely would escalate and get very excited and his arousal go through the roof. And so for him, he has a very specific way of coming out of the vehicle. It starts with my hand on his crate. He offers a down that tells me he's ready to come out. If he can't offer that down, he's not ready. Once he gets out of the crate, he offers a contact heel with me. If he does not offer a contact heel, he's not ready. He goes back in the crate and we start it all over again. So each hmm. step of this is him telling me he's ready for the next step. And so he offers contact heel. We walk a few steps. I release him to go potty. He goes potty. He checks out everything just for a couple minutes. He should offer contact heel again. And then we walk our way to the field. Once we get there, it's a down stay and we go into what we're doing. And so it's very, very, very specific. And if at any point he's not able to say, hey, I'm ready for the next step. I'm offering this thing. I'm ready to go. I'm with you. We just either hang out there depending on where it is, or he goes back in the van and we start it all over again. Um, and so that really prevents a lot of the things where I get into a situation where he's just high right, getting to the point. Um, but as far as specific locations go, um, he definitely has those locations where he's like, oh, this is training going I do fun <laughs> things. Um, the way I combat that with him and what I've really found that works best is to bring him out, do our obedience. If I have obedience things in for a goal. So if I'm like, I really want to work Littlewood today, the handler scent discrimination exercise, I'm going to work that in my obedience and I'm going to set up my obedience program. Then he's going to go back in the van and then I'll come bring him back out. And then we'll do our, our bite work. Because otherwise I found like he was always trying to lead into bite work. Like when's bite work coming? When's bite work coming? And I, I would be like, that's fine. He has to be able to do that. And I do occasionally, but I would never push our obedience enough because I was worried about the obedience becoming um, not as fun because he's like, okay, but that obedience is really, really hard. And I just wanted to bite the guy. So I was worried about becoming demotivating if I really pushed his obedience. And so I just found, I never challenged him when I worked them both together. So unless I'm specifically trial prepping, I tend to work obedience separate from our bite work just so that I don't have an excuse not to push and challenge him in his obedience phase.
0: Did you find it- that when you were doing that, when you were doing that, um, If you're doing bite work first, did you find that he was too, uh, like jacked up then to do the obedience? Did you feel like he wasn't dropping down, uh, to be able to work in a clearer state of mind?
2: He would be able to work just fine like that. That wasn't probably, he was just so tired. Like he just gets so jazzed in bite work and he just, he's one of those dogs that's like 150% and he is just so tired. And then I'm so picky about things like grip on the retrieve that I would be worried then not to work retrieve. So I'm like, he's panting a lot. Like, I don't want to push this and cause an issue in my retrieve, which I'm very particular about and I care about. And so that's the issue I'd run into is that even if I mixed in bite work or anything like that, I'd be like, "Mm, he's really tired. I don't want to risk my retrieve. Let's just skip retrieve. And so that's kind of like the basis of a lot of my training is I'm trying to set my dog up for success as much as possible. And so if there's a spot where I'm like, I'm not ready to pick this battle, or I don't want to pick this battle, or my focus for the session are these three things, then I tend to let those other ones be easier. So I might focus on retrieve. I really want a hard retrieve today. And I want a hard defensive handler. And I want, um, a hard search. Like those are my three goals for the day. Everything else I want to make easier to compensate for that. But if I'm doing by work at the same time, then I'm like, okay, well, we'll just let the retrieve side. Let's just do an easy retrieve and like, just do it. Um, but I'm never actually pushing it then. And so, because again, if he's panting, he's hot, he's tired. I'm just not going to get good quality out of those exercises. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, now, um, a question I had about going back a little bit to before when you said you're working the dog down, do you ever start going down and then go back up so that the dog doesn't learn that like like can the dog learn like oh this is just going like low 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 like do you ever like go down a few steps and then go right back up like to show them like hey sometimes we turn this car around and we go right back up to you know the stuff that you really like or is that would, would you see that as a bad idea to do that.
2: Sometimes when I'm trying to push his endurance and work his stamina, I don't bring him down all the way because I don't want him to have that opportunity. I really want him to stay in that um, that higher working, like when you're exercising. I don't exercise mm-hmm. very much, but you know, <laughs> like your heart rate up. Yeah. Um, and kind of get used to that. Um, so I'll do that. Then my fear, and a lot of times people run into this issue, is that uh, when you start bringing them down, it becomes a predictor that you're going to bring them back up. So mm-hmm. if you do that halfway too much, then they're going to start going oh tug came out, we're going to go right back to bite work after this. So like the more mm. predictable about it, you are the, the harder it is to truly get that arousal level down. Mm. And so with that at each step and me bringing him all the way on, I want to make sure he's actually all the way down.
1: All the way down. Yeah.
2: Yeah, because otherwise, and so I'll spend some time at that scatter and then maybe do a downstay afterwards, so it doesn't start to predict that we're immediately going to go into that bite work again, or whatever it might be. And so if I don't have that time, and I'm like, I just need to work my face attacks, and I got to get a few face attacks, I'm not going to spend that time bringing them all the way down, because I don't think I'll truly get them all the way down before that next rep. And the worst thing that can happen is he starts to predict that, oh, we did the scatter, now it's time to bite. Uh, Because now that's going to be impossible to use that scatter to help bring his Uh, arousal down.
1: uh uh Yeah, that makes sense. Um, You mentioned about setting your dog up. I know um, that you do loopy training. Um, I think maybe we should, maybe if you could define that for everyone, like really quickly. And and then talk about how you use that. And then I I have a few questions about that.
2: Yeah. So my loopy training is a little bit different than some people's. Um, so typically when I'm creating a loop for my training, it's taking a reward points and putting them strategically in places that are going to help my dog be ready to offer that behavior again. So it's specifically used for teaching new behaviors. If I'm teaching something like picking up an object for a retrieve, for example, um, just because I'm teaching a retrieve class right now, it's like the one that's <laughs> in my brain. <laughs> Um, I'm going to have two reward points. A lot of times people will only have one reward point. I'll tell you why I keep two. Um, so if I have pick up the object and I have the object out there. My first step of the loop is going to be tossing a reset reward behind the object away from me so that when my dog is coming back, because they're going to want to come back to me after eating that treat, that object will be placed right in their way. They're going to see it. They're going to be likely to interact with it. They pick it up. I can mark that a reward at me to help encourage that movement forward. Because if I'm trying to teach the dog to pick up the object and bring it to me, having that reward history by me is going to likely cause them to take a step forward with that object in future reps reward by me, then I'm going to toss that reward out again. So reward, reset, tossed away, pick up object, reward by me, toss the reset, pick up object. So when you're tossing
1: that reset, the object is now just on the floor in front of you.
2: I might have it. Yeah, 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 I might have picked it up. It depends on the dog. Sometimes you can leave it, sometimes not. But I like to place it down each rep because then they see it. And so the two reward points really give me an option to um, not reward one of them, right? So Mm -hmm. if my dog Mm -hmm doesn't and they drive by it i can just toss that reset i'll skip the reward by me but they get that reset so now they're gonna go okay i get my reset that's going to keep them motivated it's going to keep them in the game but if they pick up the object now they get an extra reward by me and i can make Mm. that a jackpot if i want to i can play with the the level of that reinforcement and they still get that reset So the reason I always try to have those two rewards is because it allows me to keep my dog motivated when learning a complex behavior. They're always going to get that one. That was a freebie. And I can go ahead and make the criteria I'm actively working on more valuable. So it's a little bit easier to kind of shape those complex behaviors that way.
1: Interesting. And then um, do you ever see a benefit for sometimes letting a dog just kind of like maybe make an error, like where, you know, you don't really care that they're making an error, but like, do you ever let your dogs like work something out instead of like setting up like a clean loop? Like, do you ever see areas where it might actually be beneficial to not do that?
2: Yeah, I do. And I actually did this today with cake. Um, and it depends on the dog and it depends on the foundation they have for the thing I'm trying to teach. Like, do they have that concept or not? If they don't have that concept, then it's just going to be a trainer. So the behavior I was working on earlier was a chin rest front. Sorry, penguin's making a lot of noise back there.
0: I Apologize. We
1: don't, we don't hear. We don't, hear. Okay, you all don't hear. That's fine.
0: She's like clattering. I'm like, what are you even doing? Like, I just she,
1: wanted no, to fly in, in and like land on your shoulder. No,
2: she's that's what I was thinking.
0: Button. Is she gonna fly in and like land on her shoulder?
2: No, no. We've done that before and it's been a train wreck. So now she's banished to her cage when I'm doing these. <laughs> um, so the behavior I was working on was a chin rest front for cake. And so for that, I am sitting on a stool just so you guys can picture it. There's a treat toss away so that she's approaching me. And then she's supposed to come in and offer a chin rest on my stomach, okay? Mm -hmm. And so for her, one of her strongest behaviors and the behavior she's likely to offer in any new learning situation is a nose press or a chin rest. Like it's her favorite thing to offer. Genetically, her dad is the same way, her aunt is the same way. And because it's a behavior (laughs) I put a lot of emphasis on when she was a puppy. And so for her, when she comes and sits on the platform in front of me, she's likely to play with that behavior and see if it works. Now, if this was a dog that didn't have that foundation and she didn't like to offer a chin rest, me sitting there and seeing if she's going to offer a chin rest, it's probably not going to happen. So I'm going to have to find some way of making her go, oh, I can put my hand down here and give her a target if she knows that behavior, or I can lure it, or I can do some other way of getting that behavior. But for her, I'm like, no, she's like, Of all the behaviors she's likely to offer, a chin rest is one of the first ones she's going to try to do. She can figure this out, and I let her play around a little bit. She ended up in my lap for a second, and then she sat back down, and then she eventually offered it, and it was fine.
1: Interesting. Um, The reason why I ask is, um, you know, sometimes when when debates are made with with methodology a lot of times it comes down to like competing motivators like there's something in the environment and this is just with pet dog training too right there's something in the environment that the dog wants to do um instead like sometimes i'm trying to think so lately i've been doing some stuff with my retrieves where i'm like leaving toys around And i'm glad I had a separate word for like pick up the retrieve item versus like pick up you know, this is where that stuff (laughs) matters, because if I say take it right like well what is he taking is he taking the PVC pipe or is he taking the tug toy that he wants to get. Um, And I started playing around with just leaving the toys there, and if he made a mistake and picked up a toy like I would just kind of be like. Like, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're just not playing with that right now. And that would really, really be the only consequence was I wouldn't grab onto that toy and play with him. Um, And I feel like it, it was helping him. So do you ever do stuff like, like that, where you just kind of let the dog like kind of feel things? I'm like, oh, I guess that like door isn't really open right now. Um, Am I making sense? You know what I mean?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, my training room is always a mess. It's always a disaster. (laughs) Toys are everywhere. There's literally bowls of kibble, like up on shelves. Um, Often I have penguin flying around as I'm working dogs. (laughs) And so I'm of the mind that I'm not going to take away distractions um, or if I'm at the park or whatever, but I'm going to adjust my training to make sure my dog is successful. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. If I go into it and I'm like, oh, wow, their favorite toy is out. Cool. I didn't realize that. Like if, if I'm working, um, we'll use creature example when he was a puppy, it like, oh no, I forgot to put away the bite pillow. And that's like the highest value for him right now. Um, and I really wanted to work on retrieves. We'll use that example since that's the running example for today. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, instead of putting away the bite pillow. And making it a thing, because I feel like once they go, oh, yep, there's that distraction there. And then we take it away. Now we've just made it a thing right now we've actually acknowledged that it's there and acknowledged that it's important and that they should have been concerned about it in whatever way. And so I'm going to leave it there, but I might turn my orientation so that we're doing the retrieve away from it, for example, or mm-hmm. I might just go, you know what, this is not the environment to work on a retrieve right now, but what I do want to work on is engagement around that. Like, can you just do a treat mm-hmm. toss and come back to mm-hmm. me? Um, so I meet the dog where they're at with it, but I'm not going to take the distraction away because in reality, if he can't do his retrieve work that, you know, pick up or whatever, around that distraction that tells me his engagement ultimately is lacking and that's really where the work needs to be done first off. And so that's what I typically do and again from um, agility class today, that vibrance in there's her thing is um she's a COVID puppy. So we just never got out training with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's a dog that definitely could have benefited from it. Like there's a lot of COVID puppies that are just fine, but she is definitely a dog who would have benefited from seeing other dogs run agility while she was working when she was a puppy. <laughs> yeah. And so now we're just dealing with it. Um So there was somebody new running their big male turf and the handler was very loud and vocal too today. And that's like, that's like vibrant crack right there. She's like, oh my God, <laughs> this is the best thing ever. And so instead of working on the thing that I wanted to work, um, we broke it down and made it so that she's more successful. I spent some time bringing her back down, doing a little bit more engagement stuff, and then going back into the exercise that we were doing. And so um, kind of meeting them more that, but I'm not gonna be like, we're not gonna train right now or whatever. Uh, because that distractions here is just showing a whole inner chain that we need to work through. But I'm definitely on the mindset, like, even when I get uh, board and trains, puppy campers here, there's stuff all over the place all the time. Um, I've got to make sure I find a way that working with me is the more desirable thing. And how can I do that for the specific dog? And how can I make it so that when I'm engaging with them, those other things don't matter. And so once you have that, that's, that's everything.
0: I was going to ask you, do you like, let's say the, the bite pillow on the floor is way more interesting to that dog than food. What, what is something that you might decide to do to work with your dog then since your dog isn't taking that food?
2: Yeah. So that to me would go, oh, that's a giant hole because yes, (laughs) I don't care if my food is reinforcing in that situation. But Mm -hmm. if I say yes, take the food from my hand, do it because it's at that point, it's an obedience thing. It's an engagement thing. And so my kibble doesn't have to be the most motivating thing, but working with me should help pull through that. So one of the first things I teach my dogs, my young dogs is, um, how to get the thing they want. So um, I do a food bowl game where there's food on the, on the ground, there are in a bowl and they're on a leash. And they look to me, I reward them for my hand. Yes, yes, yes. They look to me, then I say, take it and they can go to the bowl and get the food. And so they learn really quick to get the thing they want. They work through me and I will give them the thing they want. I'm building trust in that moment. I'm building engagement. I'm building the desire to work with me because now they can get whatever they want. And then I take that same game and I generalize it so much. So now I swap out that food bowl for a toy. Then I swap out that food bowl for bite a bike pill. I swap out that food bowl for a person. I swap it out for their favorite dog. They love to wrestle with. I swap it out for the, the lake they want to go swim in, you know? So I swap it out for all these things. And all the same time, I'm still using their kibble, but because they understand the pattern of the game and that I will give them the thing they want if they just stick with me a little bit longer. Um, And so that's typically how I address that. So if my dog, if I went to the training field with Creature right now and he's like, oh, there's a bite pillow there. I'm like, cool, but I got food over here. And he says, no, I'm going, we're not doing anything else until we hammer this out. I don't care if I have to be on the other side of the field to get this to work or whatever it might be. But this I." I, If I can't get him to focus on me with a bite pillow, how am I supposed to get him to focus on me with a decoy? So like, that's just not going to happen.
0: And would you need to use the food then technically, or could you just use the engagement with yourself and then send your dog to go get whatever the item is?
2: I could, but because um, taking the food from me offers more sustained engagement Mm -hmm. and it's my dog doing something other than just looking to me, there's a little bit more weight coming from me, even if it's not. Particularly reinforcing in that moment, the pattern itself is, yeah. and then the engagement with me, and it's a, you don't get so much of that whole "they look at you, look at the thing, look at you, look yeah. at the thing" type of it yeah, yeah. you know, you get a little bit more weight that way. Yeah, I can build duration, maintaining
0: that that eye yeah. contact with you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think with pet dog training, um, it's a lot of this stuff is super helpful, especially like teaching your dog that they can access a reward or something in the environment away from you from being with you. You know, like a lot of us, we teach our clients to like be treat dispensers, which serves its purpose and is good. But teaching your dog like, hey, if you do this thing over here for me, you're going to go get that thing over there. So like one of the first things I teach a lot of my clients is leash pressure. And the other day I was we were doing leash walking and there was like a crushed piece of like tin foil on the ground. And for whatever reason, this dog like just needed to see what it was like just And it was all the dog could think about and they had food and all this stuff and toys and the dog, it just didn't matter. It was like, what the hell is that shiny object? And I told (laughs) him like, you know, give him some leash pressure. And as soon as he turns and orients to you, like give him his go sniff cue. They did that. The dog oriented to them. They said, go sniff. He, He sniffed the thing for like one second. And then, was over it and then was engaged with them, you know, like it, it was just that one little moment it needed.
2: But oh, what a cool relationship building moment, because if we do that and we take advantage of all the times we notice our dog wants a thing and we're like, oh, hey, I see you want that thing. I know how you can get that thing. Come over here and I'll show you. Like that's such a powerful moment that I going to remember that. And if they're consistent with and they take note of, oh, they really want to smell whatever that is, or they really want to say hi to our neighbor or whatever that might be like, and they take advantage of those moments, the relationship's going to be so much better for it. And they're not going to be in constant um, conflict, trying to keep the dog from things rather taking advantage of those things and turning them into reinforcement opportunities.
1: Yeah. And I, I think like what you're saying is perfect. And, and the key is taking advantage of it. When it's stupid and trivial right like Mm -hmm. when when my dog was a puppy I the first things I was redirecting him away from were like twigs and leaves that were falling not because I didn't want him to take them like I don't care it's just like oh he's interested in that. I'm going to call him away from it and then let him go search for it or whatever. So that when it was something that maybe was dangerous or was super valuable to him, but he couldn't have, he already had that relationship with me of like, oh, this is just like part of it. But I think what happens a lot is like, we don't really care about like the dog sniffing a piece of tinfoil or this. And then you don't want to go crazy where you're like a gestapo looking at every little thing and controlling everything. But it really it really does pay dividends when you do see where that can help you in the future. In, in right. and it's, not for,
2: it's not forever. So you're not controlling everything forever. It's just yeah. in this specifically relationship building opportunities. Like when you first get a dog or you first as a trainer, start working with a dog or you get a puppy or whatever it may be. I had somebody ask me the other day, they're like, well, you know, you deal with a lot with puppies. Like, what do you do when they take items? Like, your kid's socks or whatever it is. I'm like, honestly, I'm going to take it from them. I'm going to give it right back. If I don't care about the item and it's not dangerous, I'm giving it back to them because that way they learn that. I just want to see how cool the thing is that they have. Yeah. Right. I might give them a reward too, if it's a particularly guardy dog or or something. Um, but I'm just going to look at it and go, wow, that's the coolest thing ever and hand it right <laughs> back to them. And pretty soon they're like, Hey, she probably wants to see what I have because she thinks it's cool. And I'm going to get it right back. And so, It's picking those battles for one and then knowing what can you take advantage of and and how can you take advantage of that to build your relationship ultimately.
0: Exactly, exactly. I have a question, um, kind of going back to a little bit of what you were saying before. I'm just kind of curious, when do you choose... When like, and I guess I don't know. Maybe this is going to be specific to a sport for you because you do so many. So this is uh, this is not anything specific to a sport. So feel free to answer it. However, but when do you choose to use food versus a toy um, in training, and and when do you decide like to switch back and forth between them?
2: So typically, I use food in the learning phase, um, and then if I want the behavior to be calm all your food. So for downstays, relaxed downstays, that sort of thing, I'm typically going to use food for that. Or if I need a high rate of reinforcement, I'm going to use food for that. So a lot of healing stuff, especially when you're initially building it, that's going to be a food exercise for me until I can have, you know, several steps at least. And then I'll switch to a toy. If I wanted to be a high intense, um, behavior, then I'm going to use a toy. However, when you use a toy, then you're, you're sacrificing details unless you put in that foundation work to maintain those details. And so if I start to see, so say I just switched the behavior over to a toy as the main reinforcement for it. And I start to see those details slip, or slip, 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 <laughs> then I'm going to either go back and forth between food and the toy, or I'm going to go back to food until I have those details back. The other thing I like to do is while I'm in the process of switching over to a toy and those details are starting to slip, I'm going to find some way for that dog to be successful. So it might be a training prop. So if I use like a a keto board or something like that to teach a front or a pivot bowl to teach heel position, I'm going to bring those back in those moments so that now my dog has that tool to help them maintain those details and then i can go ahead and show them that they can do the behavior for a toy this is how you're going to get the toy and give them those tools to be able to keep those details while doing the behavior and be more successful with it to get that toy reinforcer
0: Hmm. okay that's interesting do you have is it different for depending on like the sport for you or or do you kind of start out the same for regardless with your puppy
2: So pretty much all the sports are the same, (laughs) you know, (laughs) we get into this big argument about how these sports are different. This one's more difficult, blah, blah, blah. And ultimately, yeah, they have their different, different emphasis. Like even in protection sports world, everybody argues about, you know, French rings better than ring and IGP is better than all of them. And PSA is, is the most difficult. And like, yeah, they're all difficult in their own thing. But the reason why we have so many different sports is because they put a different emphasis on different strengths and weaknesses and and the goals of the sport. It's not that one's harder or not than the other, it's just that they're different. And so same thing with all of the sports combined, right? Obedience has its own thing versus agility has its own thing. Um, And so what I tend to do is look at what's gonna work well for my dog and where do I need their enthusiasm and arousal to be. regardless of the sport I'm doing. So right now, um, Vibrant could probably benefit from switching away from the toy for a while (laughs) and helping to bring her arousal down. But, you know, the toy is just so dang easy to use that I'm having a hard time doing that. Um, But typically, you know, there's typically the toy has is the goal for a lot of people because it is easier to use for a lot of dogs in those situations. You can throw it, you can, whatever they're not going to sit in the grass and sniff for treats or anything along those lines. Um, so I don't know. I don't think it depends on me for the sport particularly. Um, my ultimate goal is to get as high enthusiasm and as high intensity in each behavior as I possibly can, um, while maintaining that precision. So the toy is generally my go-to for it.
1: Are there, um like, what are the thoughts that you have currently, just in terms of training, like, what stuff are you playing around with if at all like do you ever do you ever play around with stuff that you're not sure if it's even helpful or not or do you just kind of like do you experiment I, I want to know Constantly. about the experiments Constantly. okay that's all uh, I do you don't experiment. have to explain all of them you I want to know like what what
0: seems like an experimenter
1: let's be <laughs> yeah, no, like post is not actually the real one there's like another one like down below no <laughs> yeah I know
2: so <laughs> the real reason why I don't use tools like Collars and pinch collars. I'm totally joking here. Is because I want to like try to find some other weird ass way to do all of this stuff. Like that's (laughs) literally it. I am stubborn and I want to find some weird detoury way to get there. Even though it's been proven for years and years that certain methods work, I'm like, yeah, but what if? What if we tried it this way? Um, So yeah, no, I'm an experimenter, and that was the cool thing about my job at Purina was for eight years. Literally, all I did was got to play with my own dogs and teach them cool stuff. Like Prina didn't care what we taught them. I'm like, hey, let's add nose work to these shows. Hey, what if we did a leg vault into the pool for dock diving? Or like, let's do all (laughs) these weird things. And so for eight years, I just got to experiment. Um, And so that was really cool. Such a good learning opportunity um, as far as that goes. Right now, and it's the big thing I'm experimenting with because I can't seem to get a good handle on it is, um, a running dog walk and a frame for my style of dog. So cake in particular is very leggy. And when she flat out runs, she's not like flat out, like a lot of dogs is she's more of a bouncy type of dog and she's only eight months. So that might still change versus where vibrant runs. She does a lot of little strides, And as flat as she possibly can go. So she looks like she's going very, very fast, but she's just moving fast (laughs) where cake is actually faster, but because she has a longer stride. And so doing a running dog walk with a dog like that versus a dog like vibrant or like a papillon or whatever it might be, that's where I'm experimenting. And so um, there's a lot of methods out there. There's a lot of really great methods out there, but of course, maybe me, I want to try to find a way to do it myself (laughs) rather than, you know, finding one of these proven ways. What are you doing with that? So I'm trying right now. So she's only eight months. So we're we're, you know, just dabbling around right now. We're not doing a lot of reps or anything like that. But what I'm trying to get her to do is I had a barrier at the end of the dog walk, a lower dog walk. And so what I was doing was tossing the treat on the other side of the barrier. So you got to imagine the dog walk's coming down, she's going down. And then the barrier is sticking out a little bit so that she has to go down and then turn left to get the treat on the other side that's on the ground. So every time she goes down the dog walk, she's doing a hard turn to the left or to the right. And so it's causing her to kind of lean back on her rear end and collect a little bit at the end rather than bouncing to get it. So most of the running dog walk methods you see right now involve a straight out reward, and that's causing... Take when I was doing that, she actually added a bounce in a little bit of a leap off the end because she could.
0: Oh, she wasn't I, hitting the contact. you no, She's
2: so long and leggy that when she did that little extra long stride at the end of it, she would end up leaping over the contact, right? Yes. And so, my goal, and I've started to wind it down to just a jump wing now. So, now she goes down, mm-hmm. she goes around the jump wing and comes back to get the reward that's on the ground. So she's basically doing a U-turn off the end of the dog walk each time. But in order to get that reward, she has to go all the way down the dog walk and not go off the side of it.
0: It's funny. This is actually what I did. So my coach had me do this um, with my dog because he's got a long stride. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of like, it wasn't just going straight. It was, we, we would have like a barrier at the end. So he, it was almost like we had two jump wings that were at the end. So he had to go straight down it. Yep. And then we would have him maybe do a jump or just go around a wing to then turn. Yeah. Um, yeah. It didn't end up working for him. Okay. I had so, to use the, uh, I had to, you know what I had to use? But You might laugh because my coach was so appalled. She was so embarrassed at first, but, uh, and keeping in mind, like I was new at the time that I said this, so I didn't know, but I said, is there something that we could just put at the end that he can go under yeah, and the so hoop. The hoop like, method. Oh yeah, they have yeah. the hoop. Yeah, and the she's hoop. like, no one's used the hoop since the eighties. For years, <laughs> I have a hoop. Don't worry, I've experimented with the hoop. <laughs> oh, let me tell you, the hoop is the best thing. Now, my dog, like two two people uh, that have my dog's brothers, they're both like they both like write to me all the time. Oh, your contacts are amazing, and I'm like, yeah, the hoop, the hoop, and the they're hoop. like, no, I'm not using the hoop. <laughs> There's a few things that like come
2: in and out of agility that are so funny that once they come back into phase, everyone's like, yeah, we've been doing that forever. It's it's like everything else, you know? Same with DISC. You'll see a move and everyone's like, wow, that's such a cool, innovative move. And they're like, yeah, so-and-so did it in the 80s. Everybody <laughs> forgot about it. But yeah, so I think the method where I'm heading with X So my fear was fading. I hate fading things. So I was worried about fading the barriers at the end and still maintaining it. So right away early, I'm teaching it as the criteria of running all the way down to the end. So the barriers no longer keeping her on the thing. They're just the thing to go around at the end. So she is choosing to run all the way down the end of the dog walk and then come around the barrier. Mm-hmm. So I think, I hope that's going to be the difference because the other times I've seen this method be used, there was People stayed with the barrier, I think maybe a little too long. And then the dog never quite understood, but like within the first session or two, I was already fading that barrier away. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know. It's an experiment, right? Yeah.
0: (laughs) I find with it, at least with my, like with what I was doing with agility, I find, and maybe it's also because the dog. if you have the right dog, that's kind of motivated enough to do it. You're able to fade stuff so much faster than if you're doing it with a pet. Like just pet training in a home? I think it has to do
2: a lot with the concepts. So like our Mm -hmm. dogs, our sport dogs, they learn how to learn and they practice learning so much more than anybody else's dogs. Right. So every time you go and work with somebody else's dog, they have to learn how to learn with you. Right. And so Mm -hmm. then it's a whole thing too. And so our dogs do get practice fading the props and lures and stuff like that. They get practice building and shaping behaviors, which is a skill all, all by itself. So I think that practice really, really helps.
0: Yeah. That's a really good point actually, because you have, we have so many clients that like, you know, that they have the potential, but it's just not what they do on a regular basis. Whereas like our dogs, they're being worked regularly or daily. Right. So They're constantly having to think or work. And even if it has nothing to do with agility, it doesn't matter.
1: They have real lives.
0: (laughs) 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 They have practice
2: doing those things. And a good solid history, they know to stick with us when we make our mistakes because ultimately <laughs> we're we're gonna figure it out.
1: <laughs> so when you're working with a with, like with a problem like this, because uh, you say like you want to find your own way, like are you going out and looking at all the other ways and then coming up with your own, or are you just going in blind? Yeah, you're just trying to wing it. And then are you like? Yeah, after, I go in like... blind,
2: 100%. And then I end up yeah, in situations okay. where like this, well, like, well, I did that. Oh, cool. So it's like a viable thing. Wow. I wasn't okay, okay, because that's what I, <laughs> like, that's what work. I
1: do. But like I don't do it i want to challenge or like i'm a genius or anything i just get like late i just you look there's so much stuff now like there's so there's much content so it much makes stuff. me nervous but like i would really save time because then sometimes like years later i'll watch a video i'm like damn it i could have like what was i doing i was wasting right. so much time and
2: i mean honestly i think a lot of it comes from like when i get most of my ideas it's from training with other people and brainstorming with them yeah um and so I think that's a big thing. But no, yeah, if I actually, you know, looked at more seminars and classes and, and stuff like that, I definitely would be probably light years ahead of where I am. But here, here we are, just <laughs> muddling through because that's honestly, that's the joy of training for me. That's the same reason why I approached Mondio Ring the way I did it, it was the process of it is so enjoyable for me kind of Mudding through it and finding my own way, like I would much rather do that. And that that not not being said, I didn't learn a ton from the people along the way as well. Of course I did. But at the same time, I, I try to stay true to the training plans I, I wanted to keep. Um, and it's probably why I like coolies too, because that process is always so much more fun for me versus the end product.
1: Yeah. And monitoring definitely like gives you a lot of opportunities to kind of like freestyle some stuff. like. <laughs> with with what you're doing and uh and yeah I agree as someone that never did a sport and this is my first sport like just watching watching other people train and work it just I don't know maybe it's just the way I learn but it's opened me up to like a lot of different things and I'm and I'm wondering too now I don't know if it's different now than it has been but I feel like there's a lot of people that are in many different sports and maybe even social media like It is interesting. Do you find that you pull things from sports that you wouldn't imagine, and then it's helping you out in those other sports?
2: Yeah, like I said, the sports are all the same. And so (laughs) um, (laughs) most of my jumping stuff for Mondia Rinks, those jumps are absolutely insane, came from agility, because Uh they are the masters as far as um, teaching dogs how to jump properly and how to get that form and, and all of that. So all of that came from agility and dock diving. Um, I pulled a lot of it from dock diving as well, but then too, uh, for dock diving, most of my, um, stuff came from agility, start line stays and that jump form and Frisbee Mm -hmm. too. Right. So like it all comes together, it all is the same stuff. And that's why, um, (laughs) it's so frustrating to hear sports kind of argue with each other, like even getting away from methodologies, arguing with each other, but sports with each other because it's like, you guys, you're all the same. Like come out of your little circles and like go watch an agility trial or go, you know, train your dog in a different sport. And I'm so happy that so many people are doing that nowadays because I'm starting to see the dog world as a whole come together versus, um, Obedience people are this, agility people are that, duck diving people are that. Because most of us are, in those sports anyways, are doing multiple sports with our dogs now. And we're really seeing that cross-training benefit. Um, protection sports, I think, are the only ones that I see a, a little bit more because they are so, so much, like Mon ring is a, a full-time job, I swear, and IGP mm-hmm. is three phases upon itself. and so you tend to get more people who just focus on those sports versus
0: doing multiple things
2: um, with their dogs because you just don't have time. you don't have a lot of dog left,
0: <laughs> honestly. so yeah, that makes that's actually interesting because as you're saying that, I was just thinking how agility and sheep herding really, even though, you know, even though it's, a, they're two different things, the concept of spatial pressure, I, it was so valuable to take away from both and to see how to apply it in each situation. Like I, I started agility with my, my dog journey first, and then a year later we started sheep herding together. And it was so interesting to see the concept of that spatial pressure come into play because it wasn't something like it's not something that really comes up a lot in in training programs or conferences or things like that and if it it does it's usually this bad thing but to see it to see it like applied in its truest form you know, even natural form, if you're looking at it in a way from like, oh, well, that dog is bred to herd and to observe it and all that. Um, And the same is true, you know, for for bite sports and stuff like just to observe it and to see it and then to take it away and apply it in other situations. I just found so valuable, especially then taking it to a client's home with a situation that you might need to utilize that yeah
2: absolutely yeah herding will 100% teach you especially if you have an instructor that makes you herd the sheep yourself <laughs> to <Yeah>. begin with <laughs> but um, learning how your your movements impact the dog and how the dog's movements impact the sheep and how the sheep respond accordingly to that um the other place you see pressure being used a lot is if you have a horse that you can't catch Right. (laughs) Because you're ultimately put in that same situation. How is my body pressure affecting this other thing? And how can I use it to my benefit? And so, yes, pressure is used so much in dog training. And it's again, yeah, like you've said, it's been this thing that we don't want to talk about, but it's really at the forefront of so many discussions right now because, yes, we all use pressure, right? If my Mm -hmm. dog barges to the door, I step in front of them, like I stop that motion. (laughs) (laughs) Like that's pressure. If my dog gets a firm steak, I'm not going to turn away from them because that's releasing the pressure. I'm going to turn towards them, whether or not I'm trying to use that to maintain the state or not. The fact is it's there and we need to be aware of how we're using it and how it affects our dogs in their emotions and in the behavior itself.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then it becomes a concept and then the dog gets so clear to the dog. And then, you know, a lot of people are using them without knowing, whereas like, you know, like I did a lot of co- like collar holds and, and the leash pressure type stuff. So like if my dog starts lunging towards something and I grab him by the collar, like he does turn right away and just kind of goes with it because, cause that was conditioned. Right, so right. Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah.
2: known behavior, but even with toy play, right? So there's so many problems with toy play. And, and most of the time it's because the handlers putting all of this pressure on their dog and they have no idea they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And so then you have this huge emotional response from the handler because their dog doesn't love to play with them. And why doesn't their dog love to play with them? And, and their relationship is terrible. And all they wanted to do was have this dog that wanted to play with them. And all they have to do is turn away and release that Mm -hmm. pressure and the dog is fine. The worst part is when they're like, can you just play with this dog? And the dog plays with me. And then it's like, (laughs) but also because I know how to use my pressure in that way and how to remove that pressure off the situation. And so there's so much information that needs to be put on that. And the best use of pressure is a good training decoy in any of the protection sports. Mm -hmm. Like watch any of those training decoys work with a brand new puppy or an unsure dog. And you can see that effective How are they turning their body? What are they looking at? What are they giving that dog as feedback and how are they playing that little bit of a dance with the dog and making that dog feel powerful? And then Mm -hmm. how are they slowly building that dog up by layering that pressure on in different ways? Like it's such a huge thing. I wish so many more, not just pet dog people, but sport dog people would watch those trainers because regardless of the methodology there's so much to be learned there as far as pressure goes and if i'm
0: gonna just throw in and also if you were observing a puppy on stock so fascinating to watch like a good handler do it not like not like oh yeah you got a new puppy like you know go in and, and here i'll coach you like having the actual coach or the herding instructor work a puppy around stock for the first time or the first couple times just to see the little things that they do to apply pressure to let the puppy build its confidence in a situation to go up against the fence i mean like all those little things you know are just it's just so fascinating to observe because you think the pressure is just so oh, stepping in Mm-mm. to the yeah. puppy but it's not it's the environment it's what the stock is putting on the puppy what the puppy is putting on to the stock you know, and the handler putting the pressure on to the puppy as well, potentially, depending on what that person is doing. So I, I just think it's interesting, like to observe those things. Whether it's like what you're saying with, with a decoy or or just watching like a herding instructor work a little puppy on stock for the first time is so valuable, so interesting to observe. I'm gonna
2: have to watch a little bit more of that. I do want to get into herding a little bit more with my guys, um, but. Yeah, that would be so cool to watch, absolutely.
1: Yeah, yeah back easy. when I back when I taught puppy class, we used to have the same toy on a string that was the same toy on a string attached to the flirt pole, and puppies would do so much better when there was the pole there, even though the like everything else was identical. And I think what it is, is that like the toy is further away from the owner. Mm -hmm. They're not getting like right on top of them. And the dogs would do so much better. Again, same toy, same string, just now that there's a pole involved. Um, So yeah, that's that's, that's very true.
2: That buffer zone between the, because the human's probably doing the leaning over thing. Like going closer to the face. (laughs) So that, that pull out so much more buffer zone for us to make our mistakes that, yeah, absolutely. It always helps.
1: So, every episode I come up with a fake title that really should just be the title. I don't know why we've never gone with any of them. And this one's going to be all dog sports are the same, uh, in quotations, <laughs> Sarah Bruski. I'm sure everyone will agree. All the same. Yes. <laughs> no one, no one all will the be same. Mad at all. Oh, listen, that's not
2: going to cause an argument at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if Anthony has any other questions. I think this was, this was great. It was very interesting. Yeah. Got to bring up a lot of the main points that I wanted to touch on. Um, yeah,
0: this was really great
2: yeah absolutely so where you guys sorry go
1: ahead i'm sorry i was gonna i was gonna let you first say like i don't know where people could find you i don't know if you have classes coming up What those classes are if you want to give yourself a little plug
2: Yeah. Most of the time I'm online. Um, so I have my training group, the zoom dog life, and you can find that on my website at www.zoomdogtraining.com. Otherwise just follow me on Facebook. It's where I post the most and that's all public. So you don't have to be my friend or anything like that to see what I post. Um, other than that, Fenzy Dog Sport Academy, I teach and consider the dog I teach on there as well.
0: Where's your bomb proof course through? Is it Fenzy or your website?
2: That one is through Fenzie Dog DogSport Academy, and I'm not sure when it will be available next. Well, it, it should be if you go to that website and you look up courses by instructor and click on my name, you should see when it's on the schedule next through that way.
0: Cool.
1: Nice. Cool. All right.
0: Well, it was
1: great talking to you.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on there. I really appreciate it.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Canine Classroom. If you liked the show, make sure to smack that like button, share the show with your friends, and give us a rating. Until next time, class dismissed.